Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 65, The Space Shuttle Orbiter. Last time, we took a quick tour of the major components of the Space Shuttle. When most people hear the term Space Shuttle, they think of the black and white space plane that we're all so familiar with overlooking the rest of the system. Which is a shame, because as we learned last time, the gargantuan external tank and fire-breathing pair of solid rocket boosters are fascinating feats of aerospace engineering in their own right. But I suppose it's understandable that the eyes of the average person are drawn not to the utilitarian support elements, but to the sleek form mounted to the side of them. Today, we'll be taking a quick tour of that sleek form. We'll discuss the main structural elements, the propulsion system, the thermal protection system, crew accommodations, and a few other odds and ends. And we'll learn that from the gray nose cap up front to the tip of the long tail in the back, the Space Shuttle Orbiter was just as utilitarian as its less glamorous teammates. The vehicle that was officially dubbed Space Shuttle had some other names under consideration. Names like Skylark, Hermes, Sky Clipper, Astroplane, and my personal favorite, Pegasus. These names may be a little over the top, though I really do wish they went with Pegasus, that'd be super cool. They do speak to the elegance and epic nature of the space shuttle. It was a new spacecraft for a new era, ushering in a new paradigm of human spaceflight. The orbiter itself resembles a medium-sized airplane. It has a tapered nose up front, a large crew cabin, the main fuselage, a tall tail, and numerous engine bells sticking out of the back. The main structure is flanked on either side by its distinctive thick delta wing. It measures 122 feet from front to back, 56 feet to the top of the large tail, the vertical stabilizer, and 78 feet across the swept back delta wing, weighing in at about 165,000 pounds when empty. That's 37 meters long, 17 meters tall, 24 meters across, and 75,000 kilograms. The vehicle was enormous for a spacecraft, but doesn't quite compare to modern jumbo jets. In fact, at first glance, it almost looks like it could have easily been stacked on top of a 747. Hmm, let's revisit that one later. The vehicle is mostly black on the bottom, thanks to the vast thermal protection system, and mostly white on the top, but with regions of gray, yellow, and black peppered throughout to protect and call attention to specific areas. Let's start our tour at the back. One of the shuttle's most distinctive features is also one that was dead weight for the entirety of the mission after orbital insertion, the space shuttle main engines. All the way in the back, just below the vertical stabilizer, are the three black bells that comprise the visible portion of one of the most advanced propulsion systems ever created, the Aerojet Rocketdyne RS-25. Each bell was 10 feet long and 8 feet in diameter, with the ribs and pipes responsible for strengthening and cooling the structure surrounding the exterior. But the bell is only the most noticeable part of the engine. Just inside the orbiter's aft structure is the rest of the engine, which looks like the worst nightmares of a plumber and the worst nightmares of an electrician had a baby, who then had a nightmare. A rocket engine's job at a high level is to direct fuel and oxidizer into a combustion chamber, mix them, 
burn them, and then direct the exhaust out the back. And the SSME, of course Space Shuttle main engine was immediately shortened to SSME, does that just like any other rocket engine. But since the Space Shuttle was reusable and had challenging payload requirements, the engines had to do their job extraordinarily well, delivering both power and efficiency, but also reliability. Normally a rocket engine only has to work for a couple of minutes. The five F-1 engines at the base of the mighty Saturn V didn't even burn for three minutes before they were left to crash into the ocean. Each SSME would be called upon to burn for eight and a half minutes and then do it again and again on subsequent flights. One good quote I saw compared it to making an Indy car with a 50,000 mile warranty. In order to deliver its 400,000 pounds of thrust, the engines needed a lot of fuel and a lot of oxidizer fast. To accomplish this, four incredible and often underappreciated pieces of machinery were developed the high and low pressure fuel and oxidizer turbo pumps. Turbo pumps are basically what they sound like pumps, but like really fast. They rapidly pump fuel and oxidizer out of the storage tank and into the engine's combustion chamber. But the pressures demanded by the SSME, which gulped oxidizer at a rate of over a thousand pounds per second, would create too great of a pressure differential. You can't just go from the 35 or so pounds per square inch of the external tank straight to the 6200, yikes, PSI generated by the turbo pump. You'd end up with cavitation, or little vacuum bubbles in the fluid, which engines super don't like. One moment you're chugging through nice thick propellant, and the next there's nothing holding you back but empty space, so you suddenly lurch forward and put a lot of strain on the system. So in addition to the high-pressure fuel pump and the high-pressure oxidizer pump, there were also two low-pressure pumps. Low-pressure is a relative term here. Fuel and oxidizer would exit the pump at around 12 times the pressure found in a typical kitchen pressure cooker. The high-pressure fuel pump rotated at 35,000 RPM and generated 62,000 horsepower all on its own. Oh, and these miracles of machinery would have to do all this while pumping and being cooled by two of the most cantankerous fluids available, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Liquid hydrogen is ultra-cold and so small on an atomic scale that the slightest leak is guaranteed to be found. Liquid oxygen is corrosive and you just need to look at it wrong to make it explode. Once the propellants made it to the correct pressure, they were then injected into the main combustion chamber and burned at around 3,000 psi before being directed out the nozzle. The engines were so difficult and were such a cause for concern that the contract for their development was actually given out before the rest of the space shuttle had even been approved. But I guess all the hard work during development paid off because in 135 flights they never did suffer the catastrophic failure that had kept propulsion experts up at night. Each engine was mounted on a monster-strong gimbal, allowing the engines to control pitch and yaw. By twisting each engine independently, they could also perform a roll maneuver. And if all that wasn't hard enough, the engine was also throttleable. It could throttle all the way down to 67% of its rated power level, which helps to get through Max-Q. The Space Shuttle main engine is a seriously impressive piece of work. But the SSMEs weren't the only rocket engines on board the Space Shuttle Orbiter. 
Which is good, because once the external tank was jettisoned, depriving them of propellant, they weren't good for much. I guess in a pinch you could maybe wiggle them back and forth to get some attitude control, but I doubt it. On either side of the back, or aft, section of the shuttle, flanking the tail, are two large pods. On the back of these are engine bells that would have looked impressive if they weren't placed right next to the SSMEs. These two pods are the Orbital Maneuvering System, or OMS. With the SSMEs out of commission, the shuttle needed a way to alter its orbit once in space. Be it for rendezvous phasing, tweaking their initial insertion orbit, or dropping their perigee when it was time to come home. Compared to the SSMEs, the OMS engines were pretty straightforward. In fact, they were essentially just giant reaction control thrusters. Inside the pods were large tanks of the hypergolic propellants monomethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. Hypergolic fuels, again, are fuels that require no ignition source. Just throw them together and they'll burn. They're simple, reliable, and effective, but with the trade-off being that they're incredibly toxic. The six-foot engine bell sticking out of the back delivered 6,000 pounds of thrust and was designed to be capable of 1,000 restarts. With the SSMEs and Ohms engines covered, we still have a few more engines to look at. Actually, 44 of them. That's right. By my count, the orbiter had 49 engines on it. The 44 extra engines make up the reaction control system and were small thrusters placed strategically around the orbiter to perform attitude control. 16 of these engines were in the nose of the spacecraft, with 14 of those being 870-pound thrust primary thrusters and two being 24-pound thrust vernier thrusters. On the back, each Ohms pod had 24 primary and two vernier thrusters each. 870 pounds is one hell of an attitude control thruster, but the shuttle was a pretty big bird. Fun fact, if you look closely at space shuttle launches at the moment of ignition, it's not uncommon to see several large holes appear in the back of the orbiter. They're especially alarming since the holes look jagged and unplanned. In reality, these are simply some thin covers over the RCS thrusters rupturing due to the extreme conditions around the SSMEs. Before launch, they help protect against rain and keep stuff like bugs out, but are no longer required once they light that candle. Moving forward from the SSMEs and Ohms pods, we find the payload bay. The heart of the shuttle, this is really what it's all about. At 60 feet long and 15 feet wide, it was large enough to accommodate a variety of spacecraft. Wide space station modules, long reconnaissance satellites, multiple smaller commsats, or beasts that took up every inch of available room, like the Hubble Space Telescope. The payload bay came equipped with numerous attachment points that provided the flexibility desired in a workhorse space vehicle. Covering the payload bay while on the pad, during ascent, and re-entry were the enormous payload bay doors. Each door weighed over 3,000 pounds and was made out of a graphite epoxy composite. The two doors would open soon after arriving on orbit, exposing the payload bay to space, as well as large radiators mounted on the inside of the doors. With so much surface area and so many high-tech systems, the shuttle could generate a lot of heat, so getting these radiators open to space was critically important. When you see photos of the shuttle on orbit, look for the shiny metal appearance of the inside of the doors, 
Those are the radiators. On missions that called for it, a docking module would be placed in the front part of the payload bay, adjacent to the airlock leading into the crew cabin. On several missions, it played host to a microgravity laboratory placed in the back of the payload bay and connected to the crew cabin via a pressurized tunnel. Somewhat annoyingly, there appeared to be two nearly identical concepts for this, one called Space Lab and one called Space Hab, and there was also a company called Space Hab. I'm just going to go ahead and say we'll get to this later when I know what's even going on here. On many missions, a robotic tool, formerly called the Remote Manipulator System, but also known as Canadarm since it was provided by the Canadian Space Agency, was mounted at the forward corner of the payload bay. This large robotic arm was used to deploy and retrieve payloads, inspect the orbiter, or ferry spacewalkers around. By providing the ability to accomplish many tasks from inside the crew cabin, the Canadarm reduced the required number of dangerous EVAs and made the EVAs that were needed easier. Remember just how many spacewalks were complicated for want of a solid place to stand? Canadarm's got you covered. Just hook your feet in at the end, and you're good to go. On either side of the payload bay were the enormous Delta Wings. The large wings were required to bite into the thin air of the upper atmosphere during re-entry and deliver the mandated cross-range capability. At 78 feet across, 60 feet long, and up to 5 feet thick, these are some seriously chunky wings. Inside is a lattice of aluminum trusses, stringers, and panels. Aluminum was chosen for the wings, and actually the entire orbiter body, in favor of something like titanium because it's so much easier to work with. Titanium is super finicky, super hard to weld and mill, and a lot of the techniques for doing so are still secret. But aluminum? Every aerospace company knows how to work with aluminum, so aluminum was the way to go. Also inside the wing were the two main landing gear assemblies, which were lowered immediately before touchdown. Along the back of the wings are large movable surfaces called elevons, which along with a rudder on the tail is how the vehicle is controlled once it gets down to reasonably thick air. The leading edge of the wings, which would take the brunt of the heat from reentry, were made out of rounded sections of a unique gray material known as reinforced carbon-carbon, or RCC. I'm mostly sure that this was actually developed for the X-20, aka Dinosaur, but had some trouble double-checking that, so take it for what it is. And what it is, is another excuse to say, Dinosaur. RCC is capable of withstanding absurd temperatures. It actually gets stronger as it gets hotter. The trade-off is that it's brittle, which is not a quality you really want in a critical component. And speaking of high temperatures, if you were to peek under the wing, you would see what seems like a never-ending field of thermal protection tiles. When you fly really fast, you have to deal with heat. The X-15 dealt with it by essentially making the entire vehicle a heat sink. Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo dealt with it using ablative heat shields. These would burn off as the vehicle plummeted through the upper atmosphere, carrying energy away and keeping the capsule cool. Ablative heat shields work great, but they're heavy and can only be used once. With the shuttle, the hope was to fly every few weeks, so it would need a thermal protection system that was reusable. 
The arrived-upon solution were specially crafted silica tiles. These were super light tiles that had the ability to reject incredible amounts of heat. A favorite demo of NASA's is to put a cube of this material into a furnace, remove it as a red-hot glowing block, and after a few seconds be able to grip it by the edges with their bare fingers. At a molecular level, it was basically a fluffy spaghetti mess of sand. That's a technical term, by the way. No, it's not. The tiles themselves were white, but had a thin black coating applied to help strengthen them. That's because the trade-off with the tiles, and there's always a trade-off, is that they're really, really easy to break. They're really not that far off from styrofoam. Figuring out how to get these tiles onto the orbiter without breaking them, and keep them there without falling off, was one of the most challenging aspects of the shuttle's development. The thermal protection system is worth an episode on its own, but we'll have to leave it here for now. We've looked at the aft fuselage, the mid fuselage, and the wings, so next up is the forward fuselage. This section housed the crew cabin as well as some important equipment in the nose. Since it's simpler, let's take care of the nose real quick. The nose cap, right at the front of the vehicle, would be subjected to especially punishing conditions during re-entry, and thus was also made out of reinforced carbon-carbon, just like the leading edges of the wings. Right behind the nose cap was the forward reaction control system module. If you look carefully at the nose of the shuttle, especially noting the lines around the components, you'll see that there is a large section between the nose cap and the cockpit that is separate from the rest of the structure. That's the forward reaction control system module. Inside are 16 attitude control thrusters, as well as propellant tanks to feed them. Also housed in this general area are star trackers, used for attitude determination, and the nose landing gear, used, obviously, during landing. It's a pretty busy little area. Moving back again, we get to the crew cabin. Small compared to the rest of the orbiter, the space shuttle crew cabin was enormous compared to earlier spacecraft. The crew cabin in Project Mercury took up 2.8 cubic meters, and I'm pretty sure most of that was full of equipment. By the time we get to Apollo, you're looking at 5.9 cubic meters. Not so bad, but actually a step back when you consider it's now a three-person crew. With the shuttle crew cabin, we jump all the way up to 71.5 cubic meters, more than 12 times the volume of Apollo. Not exactly Skylab, but pretty impressive. It was so big that it was actually divided into three floors, the flight deck, the mid-deck, and the lower deck. Let's start with the lower deck. This one sort of doesn't count since astronauts wouldn't spend time there, but it still played host to a bunch of important systems. Accessed through removable floor panels in the mid-deck, the lower deck was where you found environmental control machinery and some room for stuff like used-up CO2 scrubbers. Putting the removable floor panels back on, let's look around at the mid-deck. The mid-deck was sort of a utilitarian area where a wide variety of activities were performed, but I tend to think of it as being mostly for crew maintenance. There were bunks hidden behind sliding panels in one of the walls, a fancy space toilet, a hand-washing station, and appliances for heating up meals. There was also a large wall of modular storage containers, which made it easy to find equipment and materials required during the mission without having to hunt all over the place or unpack a bunch of stuff in zero-g. A large hatch on the left wall was used by the crew to get in and out. 
but to sound official, let's say crew ingress and crew egress. During a typical mission, seats were attached to the mid-deck floor to accommodate three crew members. Once reaching orbit, the three seats were removed and stowed. Other than the one sitting next to the small window in the hatch, no one down here got much of a view during ascent, just a bunch of storage containers. At the back of the mid-deck is the airlock, which I mentioned during the payload bay section. This was actually pretty adaptable. It was possible to place the airlock physically inside the mid-deck, or just outside it in the payload bay. It was a sizable cylinder about 7 feet tall and 5 feet in diameter. Pretty tight for two people suiting up in bulky spacesuits, but things tend to feel a little roomier in zero gravity. Alongside the aft wall of the mid-deck was a ladder that led up to some openings in the ceiling to the flight deck. And of course, once on orbit, this wasn't really required since astronauts just float on up. The flight deck is the control center of the orbiter. And compared to the Apollo command module, it must have felt like it had fallen out of a wormhole to the future. Long ago, I used the collective noun, a bewilderment, to describe the intimidating number of switches, displays, and readouts in the Apollo CM. Well, like everything else, the shuttle amped it up a bit. More than tripling the Apollo quantity, the shuttle flight deck had over 2,000 controls and displays. This included switches, buttons, wheels, control sticks, meters, CRT displays, and more. And instead of five small windows, the flight deck had ten enormous windows. Standing at the aft wall, looking back, you'd see two windows into the payload bay and two windows above you on the ceiling, making it easy to monitor an EVA in progress, a satellite being rendezvoused with, or a payload being prepped for deployment. This is also where the controls for the remote manipulator system were located. The windows provided maximum visibility for getting a tough job done. During launch on a typical mission, there would be four seats on the flight deck, two in the front and two in the back, with the back two being stowed during the mission. One of the two seats in the back would be home for the flight engineer, who was a mission specialist that assisted the pilot and commander with their never-ending checklists and basically served as a third pair of eyes. At the front of the cockpit was everything you needed to get the shuttle to orbit and back safely. The commander, who did the flying, and the pilot, who was really more of a co-pilot, each had an independent set of flight controls. In front of them was a wide variety of computer displays that informed them on everything from engine status to their position in the re-entry corridor. That is, if they could tear their eyes off of the view outside their six-window windshield. The pilot would sit on the right, and the commander would sit on the left. And that's where, on the next episode, we'll find... Hmm? What's that? I didn't talk about the hydraulic system? Well, yeah. Also, the fire suppression system? Okay, okay, but... Oh, also, the APU? Environmental control system? Waste collection system? Tires? Computers? High-gain antenna? Fly-by-wire controls? Printer? Headsets? Alright, alright, you got me. The Orbiter is a really, really, really complicated flying machine, and we're going to be spending a lot of time with it. Actually, the fact that it's a flying machine at all sort of complicates things. I suppose before we strap this thing to a few million pounds of propellants and a couple of solid rocket boosters, we should probably make sure that it actually handles like we expect. Yep, thousands and thousands of hours of wind tunnel tests and computer simulations were performed, but you just can't beat the real thing. 
And you may have noticed that nowhere in this description was secret jet engine. This is a glider, and it gets a single shot at landing. So join us next time as the commander and pilot chairs are occupied for the first time, and Fred Hayes and Gordon Fullerton prove that the shuttle can stick the landing as part of the approach and landing tests. It should be quite a sight to see the vehicle that NASA planned on naming Constitution gliding for a landing. Yep, the vehicle forever known as Constitution. That's a name that's guaranteed to live long and... Well, live long and something. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>